And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter from, uh, from verse 1 uh, through verse 11. Now, as you're finding that, I wanted to just take opportunity uh, to give us a little heads up, Lord willing, for next uh, Sunday evening, as chapter 2 is a lengthy chapter and full of uh, many names, perhaps less familiar to us. And so, um, for the sake of um, brevity and some time, uh, it is my plan not to read in detail every verse, all 70 verses of chapter 2, and so we will read selective verses of this chapter though the sermon will cover the whole of chapter 2. And so, to that end, might I um, request and encourage you to make sure that you have read through, Esther, uh, through Ezra chapter 2 before next Lord's Day evening. As always, brothers, let me hold our feet to the fire uh, to take that responsibility for our households, if that is uh, the case for you, and to uh, set some time aside if you've got little ones, let me uh, say practically, you might consider just breaking up the reading. Seventy long verses of names might be just too much for little infant ones and uh, our smaller children, so we have all the week, um, so that can be broken up uh, over several uh, days and evenings perhaps, um, but uh, let us uh, do that and that will help us in preparation, Lord willing, for next Sunday evening. But for this Sunday evening, Ezra chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11. Let's hear God's Word. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them, with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. 
Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the number of them, thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and one thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Amen. And so far the reading of God's holy word. It is difficult to sing joyful songs when things are not going well. Such was Israel's experience in exile in Babylon. And we have an example of recorded of their experience in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down. And there, we sang joyful songs. The text doesn't say that, does it? There, we wept, the text says, when we remembered Zion. And so, as we come at the beginning of the book of Ezra, there is no sound of joyful singing, but rather lamentation. Israel's thousand-year history as a nation has come to a disastrous end. Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, would never again be what she had once been. As a nation, We might put it succinctly and very bluntly. Israel was finished. She would emerge on the other side of the Babylonian exile as something different, even for the southern kingdom, those remaining in Judah and Benjamin. Something different and something smaller and less significant. And so as we come to the beginning of the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we find that these verses outline the decree of the Persian king Cyrus that the Jews should return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and how the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites would rise up to return to the city, to Zion, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the house of the Lord. We're going to consider four things this evening. First of all, explained history. Secondly, divine sovereignty. Thirdly, unfailing promises. And then fourthly, the faithful few. So first of all then, explained history in verses 2 through 4. The book of Ezra begins approximately in the year 538 B.C. 
This is about 50 years after Jerusalem's destruction. The opening paragraphs here of the book begin the story of the first two generations of returning exiles and how they rebuild the ruined temple at Jerusalem. So, we begin with the Jews' return. And as we do so, we need to see a perspective without which all of life, life past in previous generations as well as in our own day and in future generations until the Lord returns, a perspective that helps us to see what God has been doing, past, present, and future. Here are these Jews in exile. Here we see a perspective as relevant for our history as much as for these returning exiles of the 6th century B.C. We might put it this way. Let's try and simplify. Let's put it very simply. The perspective we need to have is to be able to answer the question, why do things happen the way that they do? So, for the people in this day, why did the Lord's people find themselves in exile? Why did that happen? And why were they now about to be en route back to Jerusalem? Why should that happen some 50 years after the city had been conquered, the city devastated, the temple torn down? Well, one answer to that question of why do things happen the way they do, here we have in the text, why did the exile come? Why were they now able to go back? One answer is that there is a powerful Persian king, Cyrus, and this king decrees that these exiled Jews should be able to return and rebuild their city. That's why they're going to be able to return, Ezra 1 and verses 1 through 4. This, of course, fulfills prophecy of some two centuries earlier. The prophet Isaiah had foretold this event, indeed these events as it is over a number of stages. He mentions this very king, Cyrus, by name, Isaiah 44 verse 28 and Isaiah 45 verse 1. And in that prophecy, God says, Cyrus is my servant. Now, if we think about Cyrus for a few moments, the rule of Cyrus was very different from the previous empires of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. He allowed these Jews to return to Jerusalem. That was not the policy of Babylonians. Their policy was to take people into exile and not allow them to return. But Cyrus allows these Jews to return to Jerusalem and to take with them the items that had been looted from their temple during the Babylonian conquest. Now, we're not to read into this that Cyrus is a believer. There's no evidence in the text that he is so. Um, he was not a true believer in the one true God of Israel. Um, 
from the other documents we have available to us, he worshipped his own god, the god Maduk. But Cyrus was an astute ruler. He was in favor of religious tolerance, as we would call it. Um, not the only one. Uh, when we come to think of the time of around the first century, as we're thinking this morning, New Testament times, uh, the Romans had a similar policy. Um, we might say he was just very politically astute. He knew that exiled people are best controlled if granted some religious rights and liberties. And so that's what's going on here. He is what we might call a benevolent dictator, a benevolent tyrant even, as the ruler of the dominant empire of the day. And yet, under God's sovereign hand, this benevolent dictator shows mercy to God's people. And we ought to be thankful for that, that we see that, as we often pray, the hearts of kings are in God's hands. The Apostle Paul writes of something similar in his day, doesn't he, when he thinks about the Roman Empire and about the Roman rule of the first century world in which he lived. And against that backdrop, he writes to Timothy those well-known words to many of us, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. We urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so even as we think of our own day, and certainly different forms of governance from the ancient world of dominant world empires, but nevertheless, the principle is still the same. Governments, politicians, civil servants may have no serving, saving knowledge of Christ and His gospel, and yet under the Lord's sovereign mighty hand may implement policies, may take action that enable the kingdom of God to advance. That's what we see here under the great decree of Cyrus. As it were, we pull the curtain back to see here what is happening and explaining why do things happen as they do. Well, then that brings us in the second place to divine sovereignty, to divine sovereignty. And we go back to verse 1 here. Though it was Cyrus who issued this decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem, from a far more important and primary perspective, of course, it was all the Lord's doing, first and foremost, and we see that in verse 1. If you want to put it very simply, that even our children could grasp, why do things happen as they do? Because God both appoints those events, and when it comes to specific actions, God Himself is the one doing them even though He uses means and instruments and servants through which to do it. And that is the case here. Why were the Jews to go back to Jerusalem? Because God was doing that, causing it to be. We confess that through the words of our catechism as we reflect upon the Scriptures. When we think of God's work of providence, what's the 
great words of our forefathers. God's work of works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's the testimony of the Holy Scripture, and we have a specific example of that here. Every event of every circumstance is the outcome of the sovereign rule of God. And that includes here the actions of an otherwise godless king of a tyrannical empire of the Medes and the Persians. Now, from the point of the view of the Jewish exiles, it was reassuring to know that God had not forgotten them and rejected them forever. Nor were they beyond His reach, though they seemingly were under the power of this great and mighty King. What a blessing then it is to know, as we seek to apply that to ourselves here, though we thankfully are not living in such circumstances of exile under some mighty dominant empire of the whole world, Yet, again, applying the principle, what a blessing it is to God's people to know that even in the darkest of places today, even as we've prayed for some of those this evening where the people of God are persecuted, even in those places, the Lord still can and does overrule leaders, politicians, tyrants to turn events to His great glory, and for the good of His church. As we see the example before us here in ancient history, God's plan could not be impeded. It could not be thwarted. It could not be stopped, even by one as great as Cyrus. In fact, he was part of it, wasn't he? He was but an instrument in God's hand. Rather than impeding God's plan, He was part of God's plan. He was bringing it about. And so, from one point of view, these events at the horizontal level of our world were the result of a decree of a king, as we might say, a human policy. But from another perspective, a much more important point of view, the sovereign point of view of God. It was the hand of God that brought about these things. Now, we pause for a moment to see again here in the book of Ezra um, some very important theology. And it is to see that the actions of men, even the initiatives of men, and the sovereignty of God are often concurrent events. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And so, without violating the way that things happen by God using what we call means, secondary causes, without violating that, without losing the meaningfulness of cause and effect, without violating what we call the free agency of men, women, boys, and girls to act according to who and what they are, God does not use means as if we are coerced like puppets. They've often said in Sunday school hours when we've talked about this, it is not as if I find myself moving over here like this, but my mind is screaming, I don't want to go. 
It's not coercion. That is free agency. I move because I want to move. I'm able to move. But at the same time, whilst not violating that in any way, God sovereignly accomplishes and ensures that His will is done. No matter how I exercise a free agency, it is never to thwart God's purpose. And so it was here. His sovereign decree comes to pass. Now, how God does this is ultimately mystery. We cannot in our finite minds give a complete and sufficient and adequate explanation of it. But that does not mean, brethren, that it is not so. We have said this over and over again, and we have to come to see it again here in this passage. Just because I cannot exhaustively explain that to you does not mean it is not true. Just because I cannot do that does not mean that God cannot do that. That's often the problem in the modern world, isn't it? If I cannot do it, if I cannot explain it, then it cannot be. Um, that's an argument of fallacy to reason in that way. Of course, the Scripture teaches that consistently, Old Testament and New Testament. Remember the example of Joseph and the brothers. They thought they were just getting rid of a problem brother, Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph explains that God, even through that, even through the wicked acts of men, is accomplishing His purpose to preserve life. Were they coerced to it to do it? No, they were not. They did it freely. There was free agency. But was God sovereignly accomplishing His purpose even through that? Yes, He was. It wasn't as if that happened, and then God had to kind of go, oh, well, now, I didn't quite anticipate that in my plan. Now I better find a way to deal with that. God is not reacting. God sovereignly ordains from all of eternity, but in such a way that He accomplishes through the free agency of men. Of course, Paul makes that clear again and again, doesn't he, in his letters in the New Testament, perhaps most um, obviously in Philippians 2, 12, 13, where he brings those two things together. Our responsibility to do that which he commands, but at the same time making clear that those things have been sovereignly ordained for us, the works that God ordains for us to do. Perhaps most clearly, Peter declares that when it comes to that pivotal moment in redemptive history. What did Peter tell his great hearers of his great sermon at Pentecost? He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, there's the sovereign purpose. And then he says to them, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Could they say, we're not responsible because it was the sovereign act of God? So, what could we have done about it? Absolutely not, says Peter. Yes, it was God's sovereign plan to deliver up the Son in order that salvation might be accomplished. It was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, says the Apostle Peter. But then he turns to those people and says, you are accountable. 
you, through your free agency, acted as you did and are accountable for that. Acts 2 verse 23. So, as we come back to the historic event here in front of us, the cause of Israel's downfall was no accident. It was a result of their rebellion, their free agency to disobey God. And so, God had come in judgment as He had threatened to do with the Babylonian invasion, Jeremiah 13, verses 15 through 27. See, God's sovereignty here at every point does not negate Israel's responsibility for her disobedience. Now, we may find that difficult to understand, and if you do not, I think you're probably either not thinking very carefully about what I'm saying, or you just don't want to deal with what's in the text here. It is difficult to understand, but let me put it to you this way, in a very practical way. Though it is difficult to understand, it is of the greatest comfort to the Christian that this is so. Let me put it this way. Do you really want to believe, Christian, that in the darkest of circumstances, God is not fully in control of your life? I certainly do not. That would be a scary place to be. That somehow something else is more sovereign than God in the darkest and difficult circumstances. Now, God's sovereignty does not guarantee to us never to have difficult and dark circumstances through which to pass. Indeed, God sovereignly ordains such things. He tells us that through the Apostle Peter. Trials, grievous trials but it is the great comfort to Christians that in the midst of those, whatever that may be for you this evening, you may be passing through that. But as you pass it, you have one who will never leave you nor forsake you, and one who is sovereign over those things, that when they have accomplished the purpose to which they have been sent, they can do no more. They are set bounds by the sovereignty of God. And even if we are not delivered from them in this world, we certainly will be delivered from them in the world to come. So, human beings act according to their free agency, but at the same time, God acts to accomplish His sovereign will and purpose. That is of the greatest comfort, the most reassuring thought to the believer. God's will is done in earth as well as in heaven. Well, then that brings us in the third place to unfailing promises then, again in verse 1, unfailing promises. Why did Cyrus and ultimately God decree that the Jews return to Jerusalem? Well, for Cyrus, as I've said earlier, it was all part of an enlightened policy of repatriation of peoples who had been uh, taken from their lands and over which now he had control, having conquered the previous conquerors. But from God's perspective, it was in order to fulfill a promise that He had made some time ago in prophecy. Ezra 1.1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. 
That's why this event happens. That the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. If you want to go back and read the prophecy, you'll find it in Jeremiah 25 and verses 11 through 12 and Jeremiah 29 at verse 10. As Jeremiah prophesies just before the exile, the prophecy describes the captivity and the time of that captivity of many, many years. Other prophetic passages reference Cyrus, either by name or by implication, again most notably in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 41.2, Isaiah 41.25, Isaiah 44.28, Isaiah 45 verses 1 and 13. The prophets also spoke of the, the fall of Babylon, the original um, conqueror who had come with such destruction to Judah and Jerusalem, again in the book of Jeremiah. The point specifically here in Ezra chapter 1 is to underline the fulfillment of the promise that God had given that this was not the end, the end without any future for God's people. It exhorts the exiled believers in Babylon, even now under a Persian king, and even as it speaks to us here this evening, to continue trusting in the Word of God's promise. Even dark and desperate though the situation seems, God had given an unfailing promise that this was not how things would always be and this was not the end for God's people. And so the promise of the return of the exiles to Jerusalem was, of course, part of a much larger promise that flows throughout the Scriptures. A promise that begins right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says He would send the seed of the woman to conquer the seed of the serpent, that He would send the Messiah to bring salvation to those who were lost in sin. That's the big promise of all of Scripture into which this particular promise fits that God would come to save His sinful people. And so Israel's history demonstrated God's plan. God was fulfilling that plan, that from within her ranks, according to human descent, according to His human nature, a mediator would come, a Savior would come, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. And so, because of that overarching grand promise, we might say, from Genesis 3.15, and of the promise as a subset, we might say, of that, of the promise of the return of the people of God from exile, that they wouldn't just disappear into obscurity. The story of Israel cannot end in Babylon, else God's Word has failed. His promise has failed, hasn't it? A remnant of true believers must return to Jerusalem and, as it were, continue the story until we get to those words that the Apostle Paul says famously in the New Testament, Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law. How can that be fulfilled if the people of God disappear here? It cannot, can it? And so God here acts through a human instrument, Cyrus, to continue the story in continuing fulfillment step by step of His word of promise. Again, that should be great encouragement to us. God does not forget any promise He makes to us. Whatever the circumstances may seem to us, we may be devastated often by failed human promises. And we are, if you've lived any length of time in this fallen world, there are very few people who have not been disappointed and perhaps even devastated by failed promises of men. But God is not a man that He should be like fallen, futile men who cannot and do not fulfill their promises. God has not forgotten His promise to save His people here, and so He acts. However difficult it must have been in exile to imagine how this was to be done, the promise of the return was to fuel the faith of God's people, to maintain that conviction, that assurance that even in their darkest hour, the promises of God are sure and certain. And so, we are to be strengthened in faith again this evening ourselves. We sit at a different point in redemptive history. The Messiah has come. We're not looking forward to that. We look back on that fulfilled. And yet, we still look forward to a promise that is given to us, the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to fulfill all things, to bring all things to consummation. What's the response of this world often to that promise of God? Where is the promise of His coming, they said, even as Peter records in his epistle. It's no different today, is it? You'll come across many people like that. Where is this promise of His coming? And perhaps if we hear that often enough, we begin to wonder ourselves. Perhaps we don't say it with the same doubt, the same sarcasm, the same dismissal but somehow it begins to nag away. Is the Lord going to return? It seems a long time. Perhaps we wonder, is He good for His Word? Brethren, He is good for His Word. Just as much as He fulfilled this promise, He will fulfill all of His promises because why? All of His promises are yes and amen in Christ, Paul says. We can trust Him for that. Well, then it brings us in the fourth place to the faithful few. The faithful few, and we read of that here in verses uh, uh, 5 through 11. It must have been difficult for those who returned to Jerusalem. Most had no homes or property in the city or in its vicinity that they still could call their own. The returning exiles had never seen or experienced the temple and its worship. 
and nor had those born since the Babylonian invasion in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, God had maintained a faithful remnant among the survivors of the Babylonian conquest. And so, among the exiles were those who were prepared to return with a single-minded purpose to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, verse 5. Now, not everyone seemingly wanted to return. However, survivors in the Babylonian empire, as we read of them in verse 4, who did not wish to return, were still ordered to provide support for this. They were to provide gold and silver and livestock and other necessary things and to give them to those who would go, who were willing, who were eager to return to Jerusalem. We also read that beside these gifts, the royal treasury of Cyrus provided for the rebuilding of the temple. Again, verse 5. Now, again, we've got to try and enter into their situation here a little bit. Um, The vast majority of these Jewish exiles who remained in Babylon had never known any other way of life. They'd never experienced that themselves. They might have heard the stories, but they had not known them in their own experience. But among them yet still were true believers who kept alive, as we might say, the faith of their fathers and ensured that knowledge of the true faith would be passed on and then would be still known even in faraway places from Judah and Jerusalem. But when the time had come, God acted that at least some of these would be sent to return to Jerusalem, that the temple might be rebuilt, and indeed, as we get to the book of Nehemiah, the city might be rebuilt. And so, we see that the means, the necessary means for this to be accomplished, God had made provision for again through various individuals, even the royal treasury. Um, God made willing one like Cyrus, to fulfill his purpose. Even those things that had been looted from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, uh, even those things were now to be returned. We read they were brought to a man named Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, in verses 7 through 11. Wonderful thing, wonderful thing. And so, these things, together with the voluntary gifts, verse 6, were all brought together for this mighty, great project of the rebuilding of the temple. Now, as we read these things, and we're not going to go through these in great detail, but all of the individual items logged, catalogued, um, what are we to make of all of this? Uh, Sometimes when we read through passages like this, we think there's just a lot of unnecessary detail pots and pans and dishes and all of these things. What have they got to do with anything? Perhaps we might put it more specifically, what have these things got to do with true religion? Well, we need to see that these things were not just utensils, gold, silver, whatever. As we might say, not just the pots and pans 
that you put in your pantry. These were the vessels that had been used in the temple, commanded by God to be made for that holy use, and therefore they themselves were holy, set apart for the worship of God. We read there were over 5,000 of them in summary, verse 11, though it seems only a part of the inventory was listed in detail here. Perhaps these were the most significant items. But again, what's important here is back in the 8th century, when the prophet Isaiah had foretold that when the exiles left Babylon to return to Jerusalem, he said that they would return carrying these very temple vessels with them. How unlikely must that have seemed in the face of oncoming invasion and destruction of Babylon, coming to them to destroy their land, their city, their temple. <clears throat> and now, yet, God says through His prophet, you are going to come back and you will bring those very things with you. How it requires faith in the Word of God that such things would be accomplished. But so we read Isaiah 52, 11 through 12. That's what God said. And so the faithful Israelites in exile, in exile from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, those of the priestly tribe of Levi, those who would have held those, these items very dear and very uh, significant and very important. They were symbols of God's covenant dealings with His people. And so their return would signal to the faithful, the precise nature of God's promise, God's faithfulness to His promise to fulfill His covenant. God had said, you will come back and you will bring these things with you. And so they did. Now, not every item was returned, and the one significant item that's omitted here is the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the ark was in the very holy of holies in the center of the temple. The ark is not among this inventory. As far as we know, and we must not rely upon Hollywood movies uh, and all of those kind of things to um, be the definers of our accurate history, as far as we know, the ark was never seen again after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. So don't determine your history from Indiana Jones. The ark was never seen again after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. Indeed, the second temple that would be built, for all of its importance and significance, would not be as glorious as the first, um, a point to which those older members of the Jewish community um, were acutely aware, and we'll get to that um, when we get to Ezra chapter 3. But perhaps one reason for this is God was already preparing the time when God would show His people that the physical temple was but a pointer to a much greater reality. Indeed, in the end, the golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, was not the ultimate thing. And so, its disappearance is not the end of everything for God's people. 
who indeed is the great fulfillment of it, is of course Christ Himself. And when so when Christ comes, it's not then even about a physical temple in which the Ark of the Covenant sits physically in a Holy of Holies behind a curtain, but rather it is Christ Himself, the manifestation, Christ Himself coming to tabernacle with His people, the presence of God with His people, and the temple being built of living stones upon a most precious cornerstone. And perhaps here we can see God already preparing His people for that time, preparing them where the very law of God is no longer written on tablets of stone sitting in an ark of the covenant in the center of a physical temple. But as we were reading this morning, that law would be written not on stone but on hearts of flesh, Jeremiah 31 through 33. Again, just before we come to a close, the return of these items, therefore, the ones that were returned, is no small thing here. It's no small thing. Um, sometimes we just read it because we know the whole story, and we go, oh, yeah, okay, and we move on. But it's no small thing. These things represented the people's hope of a rebuilt city and a rebuilt temple. Even more significant are the people themselves who come back with these items, those who carried the items back physically from Babylon to Judah, again, most of whom had never seen Solomon's temple or the city of Jerusalem. It was to be a journey of faith, a journey of faith that God would fulfill His Word. He is already beginning to do this in this very act of the Jews returning, carrying these items with them. And that's where we come to as we close this evening, as the chapter closes with the words, from Babylonia to Jerusalem, verse 11. Here a new era begins for the people of God. Of course, Jerusalem is the symbol. It is consistently in the Bible of God's city. Just as Babylon is the symbol of the fallen world city. And that points us to those things as well as we close here at the end of chapter 1 of Ezra. Even as we think of those fulfillments in city of Jerusalem, city of Babylon, of course we are drawn, if we know anything of the work of Augustine, to his great book, City of God, remember written against the backdrop of invading uh, Goths, sacking Rome in the fifth century. Many Christians in that time were in a state of shock. What is God doing? Perhaps even thinking, what is happening? Never mind, is God doing anything? Augustine, against that historical event, writes this book, The City of God. It's a book that presents human history as one of conflict between the city of God, which will always triumph, over the fallen city of man. It's presented in terms of these two cities. The city of man is Babylon, the city of God, Jerusalem. And as we get to the very end of the Bible, 
the closing pages of Scripture record the fall of Babylon and the great vindication of the city of God, Jerusalem. Revelation 18.2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And so, God is moving His redemptive history forward to these great things. We have the privilege of being able to move from that time and to fast forward, as it were, to see the fulfillment of it. Yes, still in promise for it ultimately, but to see it with a much greater clarity of the full light of the New Testament Scriptures. But within all of this lies the great divide between the way that leads to death and the way that leads to life. As these pilgrim Jews set their face to go to Jerusalem, they are indicating that clear commitment that they made. They chose the way of life. They chose the way of God to do what God had called them to do in their day and generation as God is fulfilling His great plan. They chose the way of life, the city of God. And so the question that rings in our ears as we read this opening chapter of Ezra is clear, I hope. Which city have you chosen this evening? It's not about being called to go to a physical place. You're not being called to go from Placerville to Jerusalem today. But which of these cities in God's purpose have you chosen? Are you marching in union with Jesus Christ towards not a physical, geographical location in Palestine, but towards the heavenly Jerusalem, that city which comes down from heaven? Hebrews 12, verse 22. That's the great question. They, in their day, were participating in that promise according to the providence that God had appointed for them. Where are you this evening? Which city are you a part of? Which one do you march towards? May God grant that we all might be united to Christ by faith and be desirous of that heavenly Jerusalem, which is the great culmination of all things in God's great plan and purpose. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opening chapter of the book of Ezra. It has many challenging details. We have to work hard at times, O oh Lord, to work with historical background and prophetical um, promise and fulfillment. And yet, as we work through all these things, we see the great glory of a sovereign God who works through even the most powerful, seemingly, of kings and emperors of this world none of whom who can thwart your great plan and purpose to save your people. And so, Lord, as we see your purpose being fulfilled here, we pray that we might similarly be part of that professing, believing people of God in our own day and generation, even as we await the fulfillment of your final promise to return again and bring all things to completion. Hear our prayer, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.